Parsha podcast. The Parsha podcast, where each week we do a light dive into the Torah portion, where we break down the Parsha, we explore a random text, we connect it to Judaism or Jewish texts, and end by connecting it to ourselves and to life. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Saleka, and I'm always joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Hey, Paul. Nice to see you this week. Nice to see you too. How are you doing? I'm good. Enjoying the day. Looking forward to studying some Torah together. How's it going with you? I'm good. As we speak, my uh, husband James is downstairs making some coconut flour cookies, which, Ooh. you know, he did this thing a few months ago. Here's some good advice to everyone. I know when people make pastries, they think, that's an enormous amount of sugar. I'm not going to do that. Um, and people do that the first time, and they always regret it because the amount of sugar on a recipe, you have to follow it or else it's disgusting. Um, so he made some cookies some months ago, and they were absolutely disgusting. So today, when he's making fl- uh, coconut flour cookies, I'm like, listen, um, don't hedge your bets. Put as much sugar as they say. Just do it. Um, so I'm excited to see how it ends up. I just... Uh, the lesson we learned from when can you kind of go off scripts and when do you have to follow the rules as they stand? So um, that's what's happening immediately in the mm. Salika household, uh, kind of thinking about baking recipes and cookies. Uh, what's happening for you and Jenny this, this weekend? What are you guys, what are you folks up to this Sunday or this week? Well, Jenny is hanging out in Ottawa. So I've got a, the run of the place myself um and what you're talking about about going off recipe reminds me a little bit about a an event that we had a couple days ago uh that brought together improv and fila skills it was a workshop run by our friend benjamin miller who's used to do a lot of improv and was bringing some of the lessons from improvisational acting and trying to like use those same skills in tefillah and davening. And it was so helpful and interesting for me to try to think about it. Well, how important is it to stay up? We like what we ran a, a scene with a script a couple times with different emphasis and noticed different things that came out. And it's something that I think about generally in tefillah, like we have the liturgy and how often do we need to jump off of the page? I feel like it's a little bit different than a recipe because right, if you leave a recipe, it may not go so well. But I feel like if you can jump off the page of the C-Door, uh it can be good. Delicious even. That's such a good point. I feel like that's one thing we really lack in contemporary rabbinic Judaism, or at least some schools of thought, maybe not the school of thought you're part of. Um, I think you folks probably do in renewal do really good spontaneity. Um, but I, I do feel like sometimes we lack spontaneity. I do feel like sometimes we lack spontaneity in Judaism. Uh, I think maybe you were telling me this years ago, hmm. that back in the day, I don't know how we would know this. Maybe this is just uh, an extrapolation that you could have spontaneous prayer in Judaism kind of based on broad themes and everything got codified more and more the point where it's hyper codified um Mm -hmm. because i wouldn't i guess besides 
you know, it's no secret. Sometimes I'm convent a bit religious in a conventional sense. Like, uh, I do sometimes give spontaneous thanks to Hashem for my life and for ease in my life. Um, I guess it really just comes in gratitude. I don't think about any other context where I have spontaneous prayer besides just prayers of gratitude um, and prayers of feeling looked after, you know, and prayers of feeling connected to the coveted. I guess that's still relatively fulsome. But those are the only spontaneous prayers I have. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not. I just follow the script like everyone else does, right? Yeah, and I don't know if I was referring to to this in the past, but one of the like models that the rabbis in, imagine like our three daily prayers coming from is these stories in the Torah that we're reading about the patriarchs and these moments of what must be improvised prayer that our ancestors do the rabbis are like oh yeah those god eventually formed into these set services that we have but like that imagining is that yeah at first our ancestors were just saying what was on their heart in the evening time or the morning or the afternoon um and think that having some of that is having a mix you know i feel like that's one of the themes that we talk about of having structure and spontaneity both in our podcast, but also holds true for cooking, tefillah, probably lots of things. If I could offer a metaphor, it reminds me of kind of like maybe the original prayer was like sand. Sand is capricious in the wind. It can go in any direction. But after time, sand might become a sedimentary rock and become dense and hard. Um, But at the same time, those sedimentary rocks can wear away and become sand once again. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of recognizing where we are in, in our tradition, but also I think finding that combination, like, uh, I would also, also connected to cooking versus baking. I think cooking can be more spontaneous, like thinking of Cholent. I don't know about you, Aaron, mm-hmm. but like every Cholent I make is not consistent because it's just like kind of what I have in the house. Um, and there were several weeks where we didn't have barley and we used Faro instead. Um, which was fine. Like, I just really love barley. Um, and But baking tends to not may have as much room for spontaneity. It has to be relatively regulated or else because there's it's just very high stakes. Um, so it's kind of like the, the cookie in our life, prayer-wise. Um, mm-hmm. Spontaneous. I think in a lot of shuls, at least in the shuls I've been to, the silent amidas where they're like, okay, if you want to go off scripts, no one's going to get mad at you because it's just in your head. Um, you know, say the prayers, words of the prayer book, or the prayer words in your heart. Like I know you say that. I've heard other uh, religious leaders say that in Jewish contexts. Um, but yeah, that's kind of an interesting debate. I wonder if this will kind of come out in our discussion today. Maybe it won't. Uh, maybe it will. But it's kind of interesting to think about spontaneity versus rigidity. Not rigidity, but consistency. I shouldn't throw a negative into there. Um, but I think that's really cool. I, yeah. I also love improv, so I'm very just happy to hear that improv is happening. I think that's great. She sang the song she knew all along. Oh, honey, So let's uh, let's jump into our one minute summary. One minute summary. One minute summary. If I recall, you know, I know it's been a week, but I think you're uh, up. 
for this one. That's true. I'm up this week. Okay. Uh, are you ready with a timer? You bet I'm ready with a timer. And by you bet, I'm buying time to get the timer up. Okay. Great. Three, two, one. Lech lecha. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so, name of a parsha. Okay, three, two, one, go. Uh, Jacob is running away from his brother Esav, who we saw wanted to kill him last week, and on his way running to his uh, cousin Lavan's place, he has falls asleep on some stones and has a dream about a ladder or a staircase that's going up to heaven. And it's very, there's angels and things happening. And he wakes up and says, wow, this is a holy place. God was in this place and I didn't know it. How amazing. Uh, and continues on his way and goes to, finds, meets Rachel by a well, wants to marry her. Uh, Lavan, Rachel's father, tricks Jacob into marrying Leah, uh, Rachel's sister instead, after seven years of work, has to work for seven more years. Uh Eventually, Jacob also gets to marry Rachel, and they have a whole bunch of sons, but Rachel isn't able to conceive. It's hard again, but eventually Rachel does have a son named Joseph. Oh, that's our time. I guess we'll never know Rachel's son's full name. Uh, No, no, I I think we caught that it's Joseph. We'll get it. Um, Great. So we should also say that this week's Parsha is Vayetza. So, uh, I oh, will... did we not say that? Oh, we should say that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll see it in the title of the podcast. Um, but yeah, this is my one at summary of, uh, Bayetza. Let's see. Three, two, one, go. Uh, Jacob, uh, falls asleep somewhere and he dreams about this concept of Jacob's Ladder, also a great movie. Um, and he wakes up and feels like, oh, this was such a great place. Uh, they call it Bethel, like, um, because it was an awesome place. And then he connects, ends up with his uncle, Levan. Um, there's something to do with sheep and the coloring of the sheep. I don't remember the exact details. And he runs into Rachel, who I think is like his second half cousin, who he falls in love with, but he has to work for seven years to get to marry her. Instead, they trick him and he marries Leah. And for seven more years that he gets to marry Rachel after doing that. And they have a bunch of children who are are the 12 tribes of Israel coming down the road. And they also have one daughter. This is between Rachel, Leah, Bilhan, and Zilpah, who are a couple of the handmaidens. Um, And they run a return home and they run away. And there's a big conflict with Levon. And uh, that's my one minute. So lots to unpack there. That was, I think you filled in lots of details. I don't know if I should admit this on the, on the air, but I was a little bit cheating at looking at a, my Jewish learning thing, uh, summary, but you, it's like, Oh, Paul filled in all the parts that this one skipped. So it's good listening and good filling in. It's just definitely one of my favorites. This one of of all the pressure, this one of my favorites. Why is that? Uh, I think I've just always found a lot of, I've always been intrigued by, uh, Rachel and Jacob. Um, 
I know that's not very subversive. Everyone's always like, but what about Leia? Like the forgotten sister? Like that's, hmm. I feel like the modern person's like, they want to be subversive and make it about Leia. I, the more media story of Rachel and Jacob, I've always found really interesting. And um, I think we've talked a little bit about all the debris tours I've done. I think I've done it on this one also quite a few times, which is why it might be so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess just um, Rachel also likes stealing the teraphim, which we might end up talking about later. <laughs> but yeah, I just find the story of uh, Rachel very interesting. I think there's also a lot about Rachel that's, you know, we'll talk about in other weeks about how she doesn't get to be buried with Jacob, how she, um, mm. I mean, I guess also for the listeners, um, Aaron and I sometimes, well, once a year, like to write a song about a female figure in the Bible. And the first one we wrote was Rachel, um, because we also were yeah. intrigued by how she was able to argue with God. Um, maybe we can put a little bit of a clip, insert clip of the song Rachel here. I suspect that people who have been listening to our opening and closing song probably realize that that's me and Paul singing. But, you know, I was, I was listening to other podcasts. I'm like, we never do credits. Should we say music by Paul and Aaron? Yeah. Music by Paul and Aaron. Uh, speakers are Paul and Aaron. Produced by Paul and Aaron. Um, yeah, it would just be too much. Yeah, if you listen closely, because I know I at least with the weeks that I edit, I fade it out when the words start, but you might hear us kind of whisperingly saying Devorah, because that was a song about Devorah, um, mm-hmm. a great warrior. Um, and then, you know, the song we wrote was about Rachel. Um, actually, I guess realized we haven't done Leia, Zilpa, or Bilha, so that's at least three more people we can use. We've got lots of years of songwriting ahead of us. Yeah, true. Well, it'll be a long time before we run out of women in, in the Tanakh. Yeah, Rich, Leah, Zilpa, Bilha, Eve, Noah's wife. The list goes on. Like, there's tons of so many still to go. It's great. Um, so yeah, there's just so many things I find interesting about Rachel that you know, if if it weren't too conventional to do so, I would have loved to like name a future daughter Rachel, which my husband is nixed because just Rachel from Friends. It's too evocative of like the moment in time. Um, but that doesn't mean that can't be her Hebrew name or something if we were to have a daughter. Um, so why don't I, uh, pick a random passage, uh, for this week and we can kind of do a deep dive. And if anything comes related to Jewish texts, um, we can see what happens from there. We'll make those connections. Yeah. Okay. So let's, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and choose a random passage for us? So I'll do kind of a, a variation of what you did. So Aaron was kind of flipping through the text and picked a random spots. Um, I will instead uh, go on a Parsha website, Chabad.org, my best friend. Um, as always, kind of... <laughs> Couldn't go to. you me secure in the, the best and worst of times. Um, so I'm going to go up and down and pick a random passage. And why don't you tell me when to stop? And I will uh, stop there. Okay. 
And stop. Okay. So um, we're on verse 19. I have to see which chapter we're in. Okay, chapter 31, verse 19. Uh, And maybe you could do the Hebrew for me. Um, The English is, Now Levon had gone to shear his sheep, and meanwhile, Rachel stole her father's teraphim. Ooh. Okay. Uh, and in Hebrew, it's Vilavan halach ligzoz et sono, vatignov rachel et hatrafim, asher leaviha. Ah, so we get into the, what, these mysterious trafim. What, what is a trafim? Uh, do you, like, I, I know what it is in this context, but do you have any kind of background on? Teraphim uh, in the Tanakh, or kind of what it could mean. You know, not really. It seems like there's some sort of family. I don't know if I'm getting this from like Anita Diamonds, the Red Tent, but I see them in my head as like family uh, deities, like little family uh, it feels like idols has a negative connotation because the torah is always like really down on it but we see here our our uh, matriarch rachel feels like it's important to take with as she's leaving her father's home i'm gonna look on safari and see if there's any other if it like i don't know if terafim come up in any other part of the torah do you know paul i i'm using actually wikipedia which i know is much less secure um oh, no, it could be more rich <laughs> and they're saying the same thing as you that it seems to be some sort of household uh, yeah i guess personal household god um statue kind of thing and i've always i know we kind of do this disclaimer relatively often but while me and aaron practice kind of an iconoclastic non-idolatrous religion we see all religions as equal um, and while this text is obviously kind of criticizing idolatry, we personally don't find anything wrong with, you know, traditions that are very statue-driven. Um, mm. So it does seem to be, uh, they say that teraphim are mentioned in Hosea 3, chapter 3, verse 4, um, oh. regarding Micah's idol. And they're mentioned in the book of Zechariah um, for oh. the teraphim utter nonsense. Um, and the book of Ezekiel, where Nebuchadnezzar uses divination to determine which rebel to attack first. Um, so again, this is all from Wikipedia. So yeah, it seems to be, um, it, this passage referred to kind of a household. Uh, I, I know we're saying idol sounds negative. What did, word did you use? Like, um, God I just said deity. Yeah, I said like a, a god of the family. A family deity, but I don't know. So um, I think what this is an it? interesting passage because um, if we're connected to other Jewish texts, and of course, so we just got the first uh, connection to other Jewish texts from Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. And Rashi's commentary connects on Chabad.org. Thank you again, Chabad.org. Um, and they talk about here how um, the teraphim was stolen by Rachel because she was trying to move her father away from idolatry, um, which is an interesting 
as always, anachronistic interpretation. When I did a Devar tour on this years ago, um, I actually looked at it in the opposite way. I kind of imagined, you know, part of my interest in Rachel, I imagined her as kind of someone who's still acclimating to monotheism and couldn't help but want something familiar from her non-monotheistic life. Like this was more of her kind of, I don't want to use a negative term like slipping, but kind of like feeling more familiarity in her the household religion she grew up in instead of this new, vague, abstract, kind of invisible God religion. Um, so that's how I would have interpreted if I did a close reading. But the rabbinic yeah. text sees it more kind of Rachel being one of the matriarchs, one of um, four or six, depending how you look at it. Um, mm. I think most traditions say four, but six is a, a wider tradition. Um, that she was doing this to kind of move her father away from idolatry, uh, which I find really fascinating, I guess, for a few reasons. Um, if you take it in more of the rabbinic interpretation, uh, I still almost find it a little bit challenging because she's making a decision for him, kind of like, uh, I've decided that this is no way to live. Um, so I don't think my father should be living like this either. So it kind of makes me think a little bit about... Um, I guess the contemporary age we live in, kind of thinking about themes of either censorship or authorities' decision-making on behalf of people, kind of like, is there a benefit to doing what we think is better for other people by taking something away or censoring something? Um, or is it that loss of autonomy too egregious to kind of consider? Um, if I were to kind of look at it from the from the text in itself. Um, but I don't know, what are, what have you, what are your kind of reactions to Rachel and the Teraphim and taking the idol? Like, um, I actually, I know it comes up again later in the same Parsha. Is it this Parsha comes up where she, uh, indicates that she's menstruating? Um, is that this one or is it the uh, next one? I don't know. I, th- I don't remember. Just stick to the rules that much. Like, um, I'm sure if, Something bleeds into another one. No, I think it's next. Or oh no, it is at the. I think it is maybe at the end of this. Well, um, that you know, in Judaism, uh, menstruation uh, has some taboos around it. Um, so when Levon um, chases down Jacob and his family, uh, they catch up to, which includes Rachel, and he's like, "Oh, I'm just chasing you because." I'm looking for my idol. Have you seen it? My teraphim. Like, Rachel, get up. If you're not hiding it, you should be able to get up. And she's like, I can't get up. I'm menstruating. Um, and it would be like some sort of, we'll break some taboo. It doesn't seem like to get up if she were menstruating. Um, because she obviously is hiding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of also an interesting thinking that if it's the rabbinic interpretation that she took it on purpose, why wouldn't she be like, yes, I took it because I think you shouldn't be using it. Or even if you did have the rabbinic interpretation, you could say that she's just scared. Um, I think she, in my previous interpretation, the way I interpreted it in that Devartora was that she was embarrassed to do it in front of Jacob too. Like, oh shoot, I, this mm-hmm. thing that you've decided for family is now taboo being part of this monotheism thing. She doesn't want him to know either. She's embarrassed, um, that yeah. she's making it. So that's why I think Rachel's such an interesting figure. Cause I think you could. Everyone, you know, everyone focuses on Rachel's beauty, but I think she just is a very complicated figure uh, in this passage alone, even not even from looking at exegesis. I think just even the plain text 
I find are very interesting and complicated. Yeah, and something about what's happening here, like both in like tricking her father and then coming up with a story and even just taking taking them while he's out shearing the sheep. Something also feels like Jacob-like, where I was like, oh, Jacob's the trickster. But here there's something that like, maybe this is why they're such a good match. Rachel also has some of this quality of like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and do the thing that I think needs to be done, even if it's going to, you know, even if it's not always like the most honest or straightforward thing to do. Um, the other thing that comes up for me around what you were saying about like censoring and what things do we want to discourage people from? Um, it makes me think of this translation that I read for the uh, paragraph after the Shema um, that talks about like the consequences of uh, worshiping Elohim Acherim, like other gods, and says that things won't go well for you if you if you do that in this uh, paragraph of the Shema. And I read this translation that talks about from Reb Zalman, Jack Shalomi, that talks about not having, not letting your cravings delude you. And it's again, maybe more in this, you know, like we spoke about last week, the Hasidic interpretation of like these other, uh, other gods might be other things in your life that you're too attached to. And like, I'm thinking about that in terms of like cell phones and like seeing young kids with like, so glued to screens uh, and ways that I get like, you know, too focused on social media and I keep trying to like take all the apps off my phone and then I put them back or only look at them in a browser to try to like limit them. Uh, and yeah, there are other things that I, in my life that I feel like, you know, maybe I'd want to take, I would not want my family to get bogged down in like too much of these unhealthy habits and also still want them a little bit for myself. And maybe I'm embarrassed and wouldn't want to show like my spouse that I'm uh, spending all this time on whatever it is, my phone or social media. So mm -hmm. that's one uh, translation that I was doing in my head. Thinking about like what are my what, what what might be some things that still trip me up that I want to even though I think even though I'm trying to go forward in my life in a certain way. Yeah, like what are your teraphim? Like, uh, so you're seeing this that Rachel perceives it as kind of an earthly craving that her father has. I recall from last week's question too. Some commentators look at Esau as very like earthly and kind of liking physical things and the physical world, whereas Jacob loved the world to come and more intellectual things. So similarly, like Rachel and Jacob, I guess having some similarities, both being tricksters, maybe both being into the more abstract and then trying to move mm -hmm. her father away from that as well. Um, and I guess yeah. maybe even Rachel as a trickster, I don't know how complacent we, sh we, we could say she was in this, but one of the stories we say in Judaism is that, you know, the reason that Rachel and Jacob were switched, no, Rachel and Leah were switched on their wedding night was that this is a little bit explicit. So if you don't like explicit things, sign off. But that when Jacob and Leah were engaging in sexual intercourse, Rachel was under the bed, I want to say, making moaning sounds as if it were her. So she could, it would be, it would seem like it's 
her that uh, Jacob was engaged in sexual intercourse with not Leia. Um, was this so in the Legends of the Jews or is this uh, as well? Uh, that seems too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your creepy thing is interesting because one of my favorite movies is actually called Jacob's Ladder. Um, it's it's actually a horror movie. And one of the lines in the movie, I don't think this is Jewish philosophy, but it's still interesting, is that um, there's this line in the movie where they say, if you're dying and you fight dying, you'll see devils trying to take you away. But if you accept dying, you'll see that the devils are really angels taking you to heaven. Um, so kind of related to that when you're mired in the cravings of the everyday, you'll feel very kind of caught up in them. But if you let go of them, you kind of have a greater reward. And I think even if that's not a, mm-hmm. a Jewish philosophical interpretation, certainly you can still see some parallels to what you're, to what you were saying, kind of in Jewish philosophy and Jewish understandings of, um, you know, of earthly things versus the things related to the world to come and to philosophy and to the abstract. Yeah. And I think that, or that quote is, I think riffing off of Jacob's dream with angels ascending and descending. And even as you're saying, right, there's sometimes we're drawn to the earthly, sometimes we're drawn to the more, I'm not sure, celestial. I feel like the dream is that, yeah, we have angels that are moving in different directions, sometimes up, sometimes down. And we can choose, I, I was going to say, we choose which ones we go to. I think actually maybe that I think we need both. Yeah, and then we can't even help it. I remember a yoga teacher saying to me once, he was Jewish, not that it matters, but I remember a yoga teacher saying to me once something similar, kind of like, the life comes in these waves. Um, actually, I think his name was Aaron as well, but it wasn't you. It was like, life comes in these waves, and when you're going in a downward wave in life, you're kind of always trying to fight it. And when you're in an upward wave, you're always trying to hold on to it. But he's like, what if you just saw where you were in the wave, and you just went with it, because you kind of accept where, where it could go. So the same mm-hmm. way the angels are going up and down the ladder, kind of accepting that the angels will be going up and down the ladder in your life, um, kind of accepting what that could be. So I think that could be also an interesting exercise in acceptance of one's position in life and the cyclical nature in this spiral of linear time that we're going through to allude back yeah. to our other conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful teaching. So I think we did a lot today. We went into the Parsha of Ayetza. We kind of did our one-minute summary. We looked at the text connected to Teraphim and talked about both um, censorship, but also about making decisions on behalf of other people, about good and bad, about Rachel as a trickster figure. We talked a little bit about accepting our place in life as life gets good and bad and challenges in life and the cravings of day-to-day. I think that's a lot to do in you know such a short time frame. So I'm so delighted how much we were able to do. Any any final thoughts for you, Aaron? Uh, uh, just as we talk about the image of the ladder, this was one of my grandmother, my late grandmother Ilsa Matthews' favorite uh, Torah portions. Also, you're saying it's one that one of your faves, Paul. Uh, and yeah, she would always. I would call her up before Shabbat. And I remember like for a number of years when we got to this Parsha, she would always be very excited and be like, oh, Jacob's Ladder. I love Jacob's Ladder. And so I made a painting of the Jacob's Ladder uh, dream for her. Uh, and 
she had it up in her apartment for many years, and now I have it up in our kitchen, and I look at it a lot, and it reminds me of her, and I'm grateful for this image and dream that has connected me with my grandmother, and uh, that's also part of what what feels sweet for me. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I love that. So this has been another week of Alpi Parsha podcast. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Saleka. And as always, I've been joined by Aaron Rotenberg. Have a great week. Have a great week, all. Take care.